The United States has more people in prison and spends more money on criminal justice than any other country in the world. It is only one of 11 countries that has a privatized prison system where corporations profit from managing and maintaining prisons and rely on high incarceration rates. Private prisons gain tractions by boasting low cost and high quality solutions to the problems associated with the explosion of incarceration rates in the 1980s. But instead, they have been a high cost and low quality aspect of criminal justice in the United States ever since. Hello everyone, and welcome to a new episode of The Corporate Casket. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to be discussing private prisons. This episode contains general stories of abuse and mentions suicide. So if these topics are too difficult for you to hear about right now, I recommend skipping this episode. So let's start as always with some background. How did private prisons get their start in the United States? Let's get into it. The history of the private prison industry starts long before the criminal justice system's boom in the 1980s. In the 18th century, local jails were contracted to for-profit companies by local governments to house people who were awaiting trials. The shift from for-profit jails to government-run facilities did not occur until 1790 when Philadelphia established the first US state prison. However, in 1844, Louisiana privatized its penitentiary by leasing the prison and its prisoners to a private company. The prison, operated by the company McHatton, Pratt & Ward, ran the prison as a factory, and people who were incarcerated were forced to work unpaid labor and produce cheap clothing to be worn by slaves. Later, privatized prisons and incarceration rates saw massive growth after the ratification of the 13th Amendment in 1865. While the 13th Amendment effectively abolished slavery, a tiny clause included in the amendment stated that slavery was abolished except as a punishment for crime. And this little clause developed a loophole for mostly Southern states to continue utilizing free forced labor. All they had to do was convict someone of a crime and just like that, unfortunately, slavery was legal again. Due to this clause, states started to develop black codes, which included laws as curfews, banning black people from applying for certain jobs and being in certain neighborhoods to increase the incarceration of people who had recently been freed from slavery. Violation of these black codes led to arrests and inmates were subsequently leased out as labor to private businesses to work on plantations, railroads, and mines. The system was called convict leasing. By 1885, 13 states had contracts with private companies to participate in convict leasing. Since slavery was technically legal as punishment for a crime, so was the use of torturing prisoners to drive more work. Horrendously, torture was common during the times of convict leasing and incarcerated people were subjected to the same horrific punishments that were also common during slavery, such as whipping and waterboarding. In 1886, the US Commissioner of Labor reported that in the states where convict leasing was practiced, the average revenue resulting from convict leasing was four times the cost of running prisons. The drive for profits associated with convict leasing led to a system that became even more deadly than slavery. This is in part because slaves had been seen as assets that though treated horribly were valuable to a slave owner. The lives of those in the convict leasing system, however, were treated as expendable. As a brief aside, we've also talked about this system in a different context in an episode about company towns. As there are many facets to this system, I highly recommend you check out that episode as well. And today we're just gonna focus on the prison aspect. Eventually, the convict leasing system was banned in 1898. However, this merely led to states purchasing their land to build prisons and utilizing incarcerated people for unpaid labor in their farms and factories. Some of the prisons purchased at this time are actually still in operation today, such as one in Alabama. Mississippi, for example, was making $600,000 after buying plantations of their own after convict leasing was abolished. There was one key thing that was learned during the 1800s and early 1900s, 
and that was that incarceration led to profits. However, the incarceration rates remained relatively low in the US during the 1800s and early 1900s compared to what they are now. It wasn't until the early 1970s and 80s that we saw a momentous spike and that lesson learned in the 1800s that high incarceration rates led to profits was one of the key reasons why. The private prison industry and the criminal justice system saw a massive increase in the 1980s due to the war on drugs. That combined with the tough on crime laws that came into effect during the Reagan, Nixon, and Clinton administrations led to a substantial increase in the number of people that were arrested and convicted during the 1980s. The people who were incarcerated were also kept in prison longer due to truth and sentencing laws, three strikes and minimum mandatory sentencing laws. And if you wanna learn more about the war on drugs, you can check out a previous episode that we did. It should be linked in the description. Truth and sentencing laws, by the way, were created to eliminate the possibility for early release and required people convicted of crimes to serve up to 75% of their prison term in a prison. Before this, most nonviolent crimes were often eligible for early release. However, these laws ensured that even people who were convicted of nonviolent offenses were held longer in the prison system. Additionally, the three strikes rules were developed to incarcerate repeat offenders for an extended period of time. In general, the three strikes laws would result in a life sentence for someone who had been convicted on three felonies. The idea that someone who has been convicted on three felonies was beyond rehabilitation and therefore would remain incarcerated for public safety. Furthermore, the minimum mandatory sentencing laws required a minimum sentence to be given for anyone convicted of a crime. These laws were mostly imposed on drug crimes and people convicted of nonviolent drug crimes were given longer sentences than they previously would have. Originally, minimum mandatory sentencing laws were advertised to the public as a way to ensure consistency among judges and sentencing. However, judges stated that the laws made them feel as if they had lost discretion to consider a person's circumstances in their sentencing. They were made to enforce stricter and longer prison sentences for people that they ideally would have given shorter sentences to, or may have suggested alternative methods of rehabilitation. All three of these new laws were put in place to ensure that people were incarcerated for longer periods of time and led to a massive increase in the number of people incarcerated in the United States. Unfortunately, they succeeded in that goal and the United States quickly became the country with the highest population of people in prison in the world. Between 1970 to 2005, the number of people incarcerated in the United States grew by 700%. Due to massive increase of people becoming incarcerated in federal and state prisons in the 80s, the criminal justice system found itself dealing with massive overcrowding issues in its facilities. This led to them trying to find the answer to one major question, where do we house all of these people? Private companies watching this unfold decided to take advantage of the skyrocketing amount of people in prison and developed a solution they could offer to the state and federal criminal justice systems, private prisons. Private prisons marketed themselves as both a solution to the massive overcrowding problem that state and federal prisons were facing and a cheaper way to house people who were incarcerated. The first two companies, the Corrections Corporation of America, now CoreCivic, and the Wackenhut Corrections Corporation, now called the GEO Group, quickly gained traction in the industry and remain the largest providers in the United States today. In 1983, the Corrections Corporation of America was founded by Thomas Beasley, Terrell Don Hudo, and Dr. R. Originally, the CCA began by offering private services for prisons, such as food or cleaning, but they quickly took over the building, management, and staffing of prisons. According to CoreCivic, they began offering building, management, and staffing of state and federal prisons because of the lack of a comparative operation. That absolute lack of competition had lulled states and local governments into indifference in dealing with what had become the lowest priority of the government responsibilities. In other words, CoreCivic believed that the government had failed at running and managing prisons and they were there to save the day. 
The Corrections Corporation of America opened the first privately run correctional facility in Hamilton County in Tennessee in 1984. One year later in 1985, after a federal judge ordered Tennessee to stop admitting inmates to prisons due to overcrowding, CoreCivic placed a $250 million bid to control the state's entire prison system for 99 years. They were subsequently denied due to the state's hesitancy to allow a for-profit company to control their prison system and the uncertainty surrounding the economic value of utilizing a private prison system at the time. Losing this bid did not stop CoreCivic though, and they quickly became leaders in the industry. Wackenhut Corrections Corporation, now the GEO Group, was formed as a division of the Wackenhut Corporation in 1984. According to the GEO Group's website, George C. Zoily was instrumental to the development and marketing of correctional services to government agencies. In 1987, Wackenhut Corrections Corporation received its first contract with the Aurora Ice Processing Center with the Bureau of Immigration and Custody Enforcement. After the development of the privatized system in the late 1980s and the rise of the GEO Group and CoreCivic, the industry exploded. In the early 1990s, multiple politicians began to run their campaigns on the tough on crime platforms, and many lead towards privatizing the prisons in their states, believing that this would save states money and boost state economies. For example, in 1994, Gary Johnson ran for governor of New Mexico, and he promised that he would privatize every prison in the state if he were to be elected. Gary Johnson did not privatize every prison in New Mexico when he won, but by the time he left office in 2003, over 44% of the state's prisoners were being held in privately run facilities. New Mexico maintained the highest population of people incarcerated in private institutions contracted by a state until 2010. Also in 1994, current president Joe Biden, who was a Senator at the time, helped to co-write and get the crime bill passed by then president Bill Clinton. According to Joe Biden and other supporters of the bill, the crime bill was meant to address rising crime rates in the United States. However, the crime bill also included increased funding for states to build more prisons, contributing to the continued rise of the private prison industry. By 2009, around 8% of the state and federal prison population nationwide were held in privatized prisons. Most of the people who were in private prisons were in state facilities. Five states held the majority of all private prison contracts in 2009. And this included Texas, Florida, Arizona, Oklahoma, and Mississippi. Each of these states housed approximately 5,000 people in private facilities. However, the federal government was also responsible for a large number of people held in private prisons in the late 1990s into the early 2000s. The Federal Bureau of Prisons began contracting with private companies in 1997 when it awarded its first privately managed prison contract to CoreCivic with a prison in California. From there, the Federal Bureau of Prisons continued to utilize private prison contracts to house people and control federal prisons. The Federal Bureau of Prisons spending in the privatized prison industry increased from $562 million in 2011 to $639 million in 2014, and was responsible for contracting 14 correctional facilities to private companies. By 2015, over 12% of the Federal Bureau of Prisons inmates were housed in private facilities, amounting to roughly 22,660 inmates. From the inception of the private prison industry in the late 1980s, the founding of the GEO Group and CoreCivic, and the increasing reliance on private institutions by both federal and state governments from the 1990s through the 2000s, CoreCivic and GEO Group had become multi-billion dollar companies with the combined revenues of $3.4 billion in 2015. So how do they make their money? And before we jump in to answer that question about how exactly do these companies make money running private prisons, this is where I'm gonna have a quick break for today's sponsor. So now that hybrid work is becoming the norm, strong workplace teams have two things in common, speed and alignment. 
both come from having one hub where everyone can share work and processes, manage projects, and collaborate with clarity. Notion gives your team one central and customizable workspace that can be tailored to fit any team and bring your teams together so you can move projects faster. With Notion, you'll have everything you need in one spot without the silos and context switching that slow companies down. Find out how Notion may be the missing piece your team needs to grow, get more done, and delight everyone who uses it in the process. Learn more and get started for free at notion.so. You can check it out on your own and you can invite as many people as you want to see how it works and see if it's something that your team is comfortable with working with. So as we're getting ready to enter the new year, take the first step forward with an organized, happy team and try that out at notion.so. Once again, that's notion.so. Once upon a time, if I shaved my legs, I'd step out of the shower looking like I was on the losing end of a battle with a very tiny and very angry animal. So many cuts and so much blood. Because no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't ever shave around my knees or ankles without some bloodletting. But no longer, thanks to Athena Club. Athena Club's razor has built-in skin guards that are gentle on curves and help prevent razor burn. Their razor blade is surrounded by a water-activated serum with shea butter and hyaluronic acid. And the razor kit, by the way, it's only $9 with two blade heads, a magnetic hook for storage, and your choice of handle color. And by the way, there's like six color options and you can choose how often they send replacement blades right to you. You guys know I have the coral one. I recently also purchased the sky blue handle because I constantly lose razors. You would think with the magnetic hook, right? I would just keep it there, but no, I am foolish. So since they're $9 and they're kind of a gift from God, I just decided to buy a second one. And, and that's my flex. I have two now. So show your skin you care with the Athena Club razor kit. Sign up today and you'll get 20% off your first order. Just go to athenaclub.com and use promo code casket. That's athenaclub.com with promo code casket for 20% off. Private prison companies rely on a few key things to turn a profit. First, private prisons get paid by beds filled. So companies agree to build a facility, maintain it, and care for the people who are incarcerated and they charge by the day per person incarcerated. This means that it is in a company's interest to keep as many people incarcerated for the largest amount of time possible. Due to this, they often utilize what are called lockup quotas. In essence, lockup quotas require that prisons have a certain amount of people in them at all times. If that amount is not met, taxpayers are responsible for paying for the empty beds. This ensures that even when a prison is not filled, private companies can still make a profit. In most states, the lockup quota is around 90%. So if a state or local community wants to reduce the crime rate or reduce the number of people who are being incarcerated, they see no benefit from that in taxes and they continue to pay these companies. Lobbying efforts by groups such as GeoGroup and CoreCivic are vital to ensure their profits and maintain a steady flow of people coming into private prisons. To assist with lobbying efforts, both GeoGroup and CoreCivic became active members of an organization called ALEC. ALEC is a corporate funded organization that works with companies and legislatures to draft bills for the government. And at first look, this seems harmless, right? Well, ALEC is actually responsible for drafting a wide range of laws that have led to mass incarceration and the substantial growth in privatized prisons. Remember the three strikes law and mandatory minimums I just mentioned a little bit ago, or the laws that led to massive increases in incarceration in the United States and kept people in prison longer in the 1980s? 
Well, you guessed it, Alec. And of course, the two leading contributors are the most important members of Alec. And these were the ones who helped develop these laws and helped them get passed, CoreCivic and Geo Group. Privatized prisons have been working with Alec and lobbying the federal and state governments to enact laws that kept people in prison longer for over 30 years, because remember, higher incarceration rates equals more money. CoreCivic actually left Alec in 2010, but Geo Group remains an active member. In their lobbying efforts, companies rely on the narrative that they are cheaper than public prisons and can help boost state economies. However, there have been no independent studies that confirm this to be true. In fact, many studies over the years have actually found that private prisons cost more than government-run institutions. For example, a study done in Mississippi found that prisoners spent an average of 60 to 90 more days in a private institution than they did in people incarcerated in a public institution. This resulted in about $3,000 more per incarcerated person. Another report released by the Arizona Office of the Auditor General found that private prisons cost 33 cents more per day than state-run prisons. Many private prisons also boast that the building of a prison in local communities can help boost their economy. However, studies have once again found that this is not necessarily true and that if there is an effect on the economies of the community, it's often incredibly small. One study found that the economic impact could be as low as $2 per inmate for the community drastically lower than the thousands of dollars private prison companies gain per inmate, even by the day. Unfortunately, they also tend to rely on cost-cutting methods in an attempt to show that they are cheaper than government-run facilities, but we will discuss that a little bit later on. Private prisons also depend on government subsidies for funding. Subsidies include building and infrastructure assistance, grants for staff, reductions in property taxes, and multiple other tax breaks. Nearly three quarters of private prisons have received some form of subsidy and one in five received low cost construction financing and general tax exemptions. Additionally, more than half a billion dollars in government issued securities and tax-free bonds were used to finance private prisons. Companies have historically and currently profit off of the incarceration of millions of people in the United States. This is worrisome by itself, but they are also demonstrably worse in virtually every aspect than public prisons due to their cost-cutting measures and their focus on profit rather than rehabilitation. Like we mentioned earlier, privatized prison companies often rely on multiple cost-cutting measures to appear as if they are the cheaper alternative to government-controlled prisons and maintain their profit. Because they have to cut costs to maintain the profit margin, private prisons have historically been found to be understaffed, have poorly trained staff, and have horrendous infrastructure. It has been found that on average, private prison employees receive 58 fewer hours in training than public prison employees and are often paid substantially less than their public prison counterparts. The US Bureau of Labor Statistics found in 2015 that correctional officers in private facilities made $7,000 less per year than correctional officers in public facilities. Low training time and low pay can result in a plethora of issues for staff and for the people that are incarcerated. Private prisons have a much higher turnover rate of correctional officers than public prisons. A particularly bad example of this is actually in Texas, which has a turnover rate of 90% as of 2008. High turnover rates for prison staff contribute to low training, so it unfortunately becomes an everlasting cycle of low training and high turnover. Due to the low pay and high turnover rates, private prisons are also notoriously short-staffed. In the Idaho Correctional Center, which was run by CoreCivic at the time, It was found that the company was concealing staff shortages by falsifying records that hit 4,800 hours of uncovered shifts in a seventh month period in 2012. Low pay, minimal training, high turnover, and the lack of proper number of staff are unfortunately a recipe for violence. Private prisons have a higher rate of reported assaults and general mistreatment by the staff of incarcerated people than government run prisons. They are notoriously more likely to have riots and other instances of violence than public prisons do in large part to higher rates of mistreatment by staff and neglect. 
A correctional officer was killed and 20 people were injured during a riot at the Adams County Correctional Center in May of 2012. It was reported that the riot was the result of low quality medical care for the people who were incarcerated and the mistreatment by correctional officers. A study conducted in 2008 by the Idaho Department of Corrections also found that prisoner on prisoner assaults were four times more frequent in the prison system under CCA management than the state's seven other prisons combined. The ACLU has also filed multiple lawsuits against private prisons due to the horrendous living conditions and the mistreatment by staff. For example, in 2013, the ACLU, Southern Poverty Law Center, law officers of Elizabeth Alexander and the law firm of Covington and Burling LLP filed a lawsuit against the Mississippi Department of Corrections. And they did this over a specific facility, the East Mississippi Correctional Facility, as they stated it was in a perpetual state of crisis and placed incarcerated people at grave risk of death and loss of limbs. Additionally, the ACLU stated that unnecessary and excessive applications of force were a routine occurrence. The lawsuit also stated that gangs had significant control of the prisons and weapons were widely available. After substantial delays in the state of Mississippi, the trial of Dockery v. Hall, otherwise known as the private prison trial, ended in 2018, but there have been no updates on the results of the lawsuit. In a report released by the inspector general in 2016, they analyzed data on 10 types of incidents that were reported in private prisons that had been contracted by the Federal Bureau of Prisons in comparison with public prisons. In their analyses, they found that private prisons had higher rates of inmate on inmate and inmate on staff assaults, as well as higher rates of staff uses of force. According to the study conducted by the inspector general, private prisons reported inmate on inmate assaults as 28% more on average than public prisons and twice as many incidents of inmate on staff assaults. Additionally, they also had 17% more use of force by staff incidents than public prisons. The inspector general also analyzed grievances reported in private and public prisons and found that people being held in private prisons submitted more than twice as many grievances regarding prison staff than people in public institutions. Unfortunately, when private facilities cut costs by underpaying and undertraining their staff to maintain their profits, once again, it is both the staff and the people who are incarcerated who pay the price. In the interest of maintaining a low cost, private prisons often have horrific building maintenance, healthcare, and food service. In the same lawsuit mentioned earlier by the ACLU filed in 2013, they stated that the East Mississippi Correctional Facility had constant indoor fires and a maintenance program that is slow to respond, even when human waste is seeping into a prisoner's cell. Another example of the poor building maintenance is the Hernando County Jail operated by Civic Corps. The public interest found that they didn't repair doors, damaged windows, cracks in floors and walls, damaged ceiling tiles, or patch leaks in the works. In the inspector general's analysis of private and public prisons in 2016, they found that people being held in private prisons filed more grievances against the quality of food in the facility than people in public facilities. Privatized prisons utilize corporate food contractors to provide the food in their facilities. One of the leading companies for the food contracts is the corporation Aramark, which is an $8.2 billion company. Aramark has been at the forefront of multiple allegations of subpar and dangerous food served in private prisons. In 2014, over 30 inmates became severely sick in Michigan after eating contaminated food. And in multiple other instances in Michigan, maggots have been found in the food provided by Aramark. Maggots have also been found in the food in Ohio as well. So let's just say one more time, maggots in food. It's not acceptable. Private prisons also have notoriously high recidivism rates in comparison to public prisons. And that refers to the likelihood that a person will reoffend and be reincarcerated. People who had been incarcerated in private facilities were 13% more likely to be arrested again and 22% more likely to be convicted than people who had been incarcerated in public prisons. 
this high rate associated with private prisons can be due to a multitude of factors. First, many of them do not actually offer programs that have been shown to help reduce this, such as educational programs. It has been found that people who participated in correctional education programs are 45% less likely to reoffend. These types of programs cost money to operate, which, you know, as we can see from this, these types of companies are going to be unwilling to spend that money because it would impact their profits and it's profits over people. Additionally, the high prevalence of violence in these private prisons also increases the likelihood of reoffending. A study conducted in Ohio prisons found that people who described their experience as being violent, fearful, and threatening were more likely to reoffend and go back to jail than people who did not. Private prisons will also contract with states to incarcerate people in facilities that are far away from people's homes. For example, California contracted with CoreCivic to incarcerate people in Arizona and Mississippi. People who are incarcerated far from their homes are substantially less likely to receive visits from their family or friends. According to a study by the US Bureau of Justice conducted in 2004, only one in seven people who were incarcerated over 500 miles away from their homes ever received a visit. Maintaining contact with the outside world and with loved ones is incredibly important to reducing the reoffending rate. A study in Florida found that people who were incarcerated and had visitors were 31% less likely to reoffend than prisoners who were not visited. Reducing recidivism should be one of the main goals of the criminal justice system, right? Well, as private prisons rely on beds being full, reducing that is not high on their to-do list because it impacts their ability to make more money. Recidivism harms an individual's ability to maintain healthy social relationships, maintain economic stability, and severely impacts the individual's mental health. High rates of this go far beyond the impact they have on the individual. High recidivism rates also affect communities, both public safety and in the erosion of social relationships, such as families. Another concern with private prisons is their impact on the judicial process. Since these institutions rely on having beds full in their prisons, they rely on judges and lawmakers to make decisions that lead to that. This has been found to have a monumental impact on the judicial process. Perhaps one of the best examples of this is the Kids for Cash scandal that took place in Pennsylvania. In 2009, it was discovered that two judges, Michael Conahan and Mark Chivarella, received $2.6 million in kickbacks from the Mid-Atlantic Youth Services Corporation to impose harsh punishments on juvenile offenders for minor crimes. Mark had run a zero tolerance and tough on crime platform since 1995 and was notorious for sentencing juveniles to prison sentences for minor crimes. For example, minors were convicted on trespassing in vacant buildings, stealing loose change from cars, stealing from Walmart, and even mocking a school administrator on MySpace. In an interview with Judge Severella, he said, this was a finder's fee. We needed the center built. I was always yelling at kids because that's what they needed because parents didn't know how to be parents and so forth. So what's the big deal now? Well, the big deal is that juveniles who were convicted for minor crimes effectively had their lives ruined by scandal. And one of them, unfortunately, committed suicide after he was released from incarceration. And some of the juveniles sentenced were as young as 10 years old, by the way. Once the scandal finally came to light, there was a massive amount of public outrage and the two judges were subsequently arrested. After their trial, Judge Chivarella was sentenced to 28 years in prison and Judge Michael Conahan was sentenced to 17 and a half years in federal prison. In total, 5,000 children appeared before the two judges and countless lives were ruined due to the scandal. It would be great to say that this was the only time the private prison system impacted the judicial system, but unfortunately it is not. In fact, it has been found that the opening of a newly privatized prison in states is correlated with longer sentence lengths being imposed by judges in those states for the first two months after they open. This means that people who just happen to stand trial within a few months of the opening of a new prison are more likely to receive a longer prison sentence than those who will stand trial later. 
or those who stood trial before it opened. It may come as no surprise that corporations profiting off of the incarceration of people have multiple downsides to it. Not only is it severely harmful to the people who unfortunately find themselves in the confines of the criminal prison system, but it also harms the people who work in these facilities and society as a whole. So what can we even do? Ideally, the criminal justice system should be about rehabilitating people who have committed crimes and addressing the circumstances that largely increase the likelihood for someone to commit crimes in the first place, such as poverty, low education, mental health, etc. Profiting from the incarceration of people does not allow us to do that. So step one in addressing the issue is eliminate the private prison system. In the 2020 election, 12 of the Democratic candidates running had a goal to eliminate private prisons as part of their platform. Joe Biden signed an executive order in 2021 that halted any new federal contracts to private prisons. Unfortunately, this order did not extend to immigration detention facilities, which have also become increasingly privatized. So it does not completely solve the problem of detaining people for profit, but it is a start. 22 states have suspended their contracts with private prisons, but they remain in many other states in reportedly horrendous conditions. The private prison industry does not address any issues related to incarceration or recidivism, and why would they? They make money from these people. However, the privatized prison system isn't the only issue with the criminal justice system. There's so much more that needs to be done. Although incarceration rates have been steadily declining, America remains the largest contributor to the world's prison population with our rates of incarceration surpassing every country in the world, both per capita and total. Private prisons are partially to blame for this, but they're not the entire problem and eliminating them would not solve this issue either. Instead, the underlying issues of crime need to be addressed. Rather than spending hundreds of millions of dollars on prison systems, states and federal governments should place that money elsewhere to reduce crime, such as in public education and mental health and drug treatment and intervention. For individuals that have committed a crime, rehabilitation should be the focus instead of punishment. The harsh sentencing laws developed in the 1980s have consistently been found to have no or extremely limited effect on changing the behavior of someone who has committed a crime. Policymakers could focus on reforming these policies and offering alternatives to harsh prison sentences. Also, if our focus is on reform of people who have committed a crime, which it hopefully should be in the future, the barriers to reentry that make it difficult to find a job, housing, or public services leading to an increased likelihood to reoffend might also be reevaluated and lessened. Profiting off people is where we are right now, but hopefully it's not where we are going to be in the future. So with that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode of The Corporate Casket. I hope you learned something new. And if you did, make sure you're liking, following, and subscribing so that you can stay up to date on all the latest episodes. If you wanna connect with me outside of these episodes, make sure to click my link tree link. It has links to all of my social media and other various projects that I'm involved in. Thank you so much for spending some of your time here with me today. I really appreciate it. And I'll see you in the next one. Bye.